Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn in your Bibles, let's say to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll just go there, but uh, if you're taking notes today, it might be one of those days where you just need to write down the references and go back and revisit them uh, afterward. I know that so many of you were excited to jump into 1 Corinthians 7 and the topic of marriage today. You're just waiting, right? Um, but we're going to pause from that and we're going to do a little bit of review uh, from where we've been in the letter to this point. And, and truly, I've, I've been in prayer the last couple of days and certainly this morning that just what the Lord has put on my heart to share really comes through today um, because this is one of those messages where kind of in the midst of a, uh, a, a challenging week in some respects and then a busy week, God kind of changed the message and said, go here. And so then you're like, really, Lord, really? Uh, it would be easier to just go do this. And, um, and so I'm trusting the Lord this morning and uh, just asking you to go on this journey with me today. And I want to do this, I want to do this review here, not just for the sake of just reviewing some passages, but because my heart for us today is to ensure that we understand some basic foundations of our faith. And more importantly, having understood those things, then are able, hopefully, to move forward a little bit differently in our lives, in our walk with Him. And I'm particularly sensitive to this in light of where we were last Sunday in 1 Corinthians 6 in dealing with the significance of sexual immorality and really a host of sins in our lives and the effect that it can have upon us. I think for me this last week, it has been a week when I say challenging, you know, you don't need to let your, your mind go somewhere uh, in terms of, oh gosh, I'm sorry that Pastor Brennan had a horrible week. It's not that it was a horrible week, but I will tell you that over the last week and really over the last couple of weeks, the effects of sin in people's lives has been ever before me. And... That's not to exempt myself either of the effect of sin in my own life and in my own family. In fact, that has been a big part of what has just been heavy upon me over the last couple of weeks. And I don't want that for us. The Lord doesn't want that for us. Amen? And Paul doesn't want that for the church in Corinth. And so when we read through these passages, we can easily kind of find ourselves responding to Paul's challenges as clearly he's pushing this church to how we might sort of phrase it, to be better. But that idea of being better is oftentimes a trap for us as Christians. And so here at the end of chapter 6, this last week, we were challenged once again to consider our, our sin, to consider our behavior, to consider our walk with Christ. And this is good. That's a good thing. As I've said in recent weeks, it's important for us to take our sin seriously. The church in Corinth wasn't. They weren't taking sin seriously. They were abusing their liberties. They were in sin, sexual sin even, and it was having an effect on them. And that's Paul's heart ultimately, is that he hates sin. Not because it's just sin, but because it destroys people, because it ruins families, it ruins relationships. And most of us here today, we know this. We've experienced this ourselves. And, and even if we don't, maybe amongst us is someone who's yet to surrender their life to Christ, or maybe somebody watching online is like, I don't even know much about sin. I don't even really know how to define sin. But yet you know that there's things in your life that maybe you've given yourself to because you thought it was going to fulfill you. You thought it was going to feel good. You thought it was going to answer some or fill some void in your life. And you know you're like, man, I just feel bad. I feel bad. I don't feel good. I don't feel like life is where it's supposed to be. And so even the person who doesn't have a thorough understanding of the gospel or of sin knows in your heart of hearts, man, something isn't right. And this is, it's sin. And so we, we know these things and, and we feel often the weight of sin. And, 
you know, we've, we've dealt even over the last few months about dealing with sin. About the importance of confession. About how that contributes to unity in the body. And I don't want to belabor this point, but if we miss, and this is my heart here for us this morning, if we miss some foundational truths on these topics, then oftentimes we remain stuck. We, we remain stuck in various patterns in our lives, unable to experience the fullness of what God has for us. And so this morning we're going to cover several different verses and passages with the goal of ensuring that we have an understanding of how to rightly respond to sin in our lives. And hear me on this, this should be encouraging. (laughs) The topic of sin, oftentimes, if you put a a sign up in front of a building and say, come join us, we're going to talk about sin today, it doesn't necessarily draw everybody in, right? But let me tell you and hear me clearly on this, this should be encouraging for us this morning. We've been talking a lot about grace lately, haven't we? And grace is a good thing. And so this, so here's a hint of what we need to understand this morning, though. We can know kind of what grace is, but if we want to experience it, we have to receive it. We have to be willing to say, okay, Lord, I'll accept it. Last week I asked the following question to begin the message. How do you see yourself? Do you know who you are? I ask this as a way of beginning to address the identity issue that the church in Corinth was experiencing. And I want to ask an additional question today. I want to add this to it. Do you know who God is? More importantly, do you know what He thinks about you? I want you to think on this for a moment. Just pause. Maybe even do this. Just close your eyes right where you're at. Close your eyes. And just ask yourself, God, what do you think about me? Keeping your eyes closed, I promise this will be encouraging in time. If he knows everything about you, he knows every thought every word before it even leaves your lips, every secret, every hurt, every hope, every dream. What does He think about you? Ask God, what do you think about all of that? Okay, we'll pause there. You can open your eyes. We're going we're gonna to leave that right where it's at for a moment. We'll come back, okay? We're going to do some quick review now in 1 Corinthians. And then we'll pick that thought back up. Because I promise, you're like, you said this would be encouraging, and now you've just caused me to think about all these terrible things. We'll get there. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. Let's begin in verse 2. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 1, 2. We visited this one a lot. Paul writes here, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul begins this letter to a church that is comprised in large part of carnal Christians. They are believers, people who believe in Jesus, but who are still very motivated and led by the desires of the flesh. And he begins this letter then to such a people with a reminder of who they are in Christ. Despite the struggles that these believers were having, Paul says, you're God's church. People who are sanctified, you're called to be saints, holy, different, set apart, special. What Paul is reminding these believers of is God's grace. His unmerited favor toward us. Paul continues in verses 8 and 9 here of chapter 1, jumping ahead a few verses. He says, Who will also, this being God, confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
God is faithful, verse 9, by whom, and so note here, it was because of Him, not you, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul reminds the church that this is a work that God has done. Who they are, what they've experienced, their participation in the body of Christ, God has done that work. And there is such comfort, there should be such comfort and reassurance, not just in the stated value of who we are and of what we are doing, but the affirmation of where we are going. God's going to complete this. He is faithful to complete the work that He has begun in you. Amen? And so here Paul is reminding them in this very first chapter of who they are and what God has done And then from here, he challenges them. So now he's going to start challenging them on the issues of sin in their lives. And he begins first with this uh, issue of division within the church. And we've considered much of this. We'll just go over it quickly. He, he, He says you're dividing along various lines in the church for your own selfish gain. Verses 10 and 11, Paul says, Now I plead with you, Brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. So Paul begins by reminding them of who they are, Reminding them of God's grace, that it's God who has done this work, but then says, but now I'm going to challenge you on some things that I'm hearing about. We know that in the church, they were dividing along lines of preference. In Corinth, there was great emphasis placed on who you knew, what you knew. And as far as influential people, if you could attach yourself to someone, it could be for your own gain. I'm of so-and-so. I'm, I'm with this person. And this was happening in the church some who aligned with Apollos and others Paul. And, and Paul says this isn't okay. This is not what this is about. He says we've all come to preach the same gospel. It's about being a part of the body of Christ. It's about Jesus and what He's done. But more than just their preference here, this begins to reveal early on in this letter, just as it does today when similar things happen, that this Corinthian church was struggling with her identity. They were struggling truly to understand who they were, especially in light of the culture in which they were living. And we know this happens still today. Corinth, much like our own culture, was a meritocracy. I've mentioned this before. Meritocracy, meaning people had to earn things. And not just, oh, you had to go to work to earn a paycheck. No, they had to earn status. They had to earn privilege. They had to earn worth and value. But the gospel preached by Paul and others was declaring that all of these things, status, privilege, worth, value, who you are, that those things are to be rooted in Christ and what He has done. It's not about what you do or can do. Again, it's His grace that should be defining you. So it's a wonderful thing then when we begin to understand what His grace has done. That it's not what you do or who you know, but it's who you are. It's not what you earn, it's what He gives. And this is, especially when we first come to Jesus, some of you maybe are are newer in the faith here, you've recently given your life to Christ, or you remember when you did. You're very taken by and overwhelmed by these truths as you come to understand them. Because for the first time, you feel free. You feel free. You feel clean. You're sanctified. You're set apart. You're washed of your sin. You know I'm in Christ now. What a wonderful thing. You're no longer to be defined by your works or your actions. This morning, I'm going to take a handful of thoughts, uh, several different quotes from the book, The Cure. Some of you may be familiar with this book. It's a short read, but a powerful one that is very much rooted in Scripture. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, you will be. It's going to be the next book we go into uh, that we make available uh, as a sort of a uh, highlighted book. In this book, he uses Scripture to paint some pretty clear pictures of God's grace. And in it, the authors write... Uh, 
specifically this as it relates to the new believer. They say there were, and it's three authors who contribute to this work, they say there were seasons early on when I believed four things. I have been changed into a new creature. I'm fused with Jesus. He loves me and he enjoys me all the time. He is maturing me in his way in his time. And four, I went too early. Three, now four. I can trust and receive love. This should be the cry of the new believer. Amazed by these truths, it's what Paul was reminding the Corinthians of at the beginning of the letter. These, these truths that should, and we should think back on these things, think on, time, on that time when we were saved and to think, yes, God changed me. And He loves me. It was the idea that, that there was a God who loves me that, that drew me to Him. And that He's doing that work and I can just receive His love. And so then from here, as Paul's saying, look, these are the things you need to remember about who you are and what God has done. From there then, He continues to challenge them further. He challenges them, of course, to avoid divisions. He challenges them to avoid worldly wisdom. And at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul begins to get a bit more personal. And he calls out the fact that this church and these believers just aren't really maturing in Christ. They're not growing. Look at chapter 3, verses 1-3. through Paul here writes, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal As to babes in Christ, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? Paul continues in chapter 4, verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, But as my beloved children, I warn you. Paul is saying, look, I care about you. So I'm going to challenge you on these things. And then his warnings, of course, get more severe in chapters 5 and 6 as the sin that he's dealing with gets more severe. Paul begins to deal with sexual sin more heavily, recognizing that such sin in particular has a disastrous effect on the individual, not just the people around them. So Paul here is saying, you should be growing by now. You should be on. You should be beyond some of these things by now. And he, and he shares with them, look, I'm not trying to condemn you here. I'm, I, I, I love you. I care about you. And so as he escalates in his exhortation, it gets a little bit more un, uncomfortable, but it's because Paul's dealing with some really difficult things. And this sort of escalates then in chapter 6, specifically in verses 9 and 10, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Paul writes, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And as we considered last week, we get to this place and it's almost like, whoa, Paul, you're you're escalating here rather quickly. Are, Are you saying that this is us? Are you telling us that we won't inherit the kingdom of God? But of course he says, and it's very encouraging in verse 11, and such were some of you. He says, look, this was who you were, past tense. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, which the tense there then speaks of something that's finished, something that's completed, something that's been accomplished. And so here Paul says, look, do you not know these people won't inherit the kingdom of God? And and you were this way, but now you're this way. But the problem is your behavior, you're numbering yourselves with the unsaved. You're, 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 You're engaging in things that would be indicative of those who won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. So again here, though, what we need to see is that Paul reminds them of who they were And that this work had been accomplished so that this is who they are now. Saying, look, you're different. You're changed. So then your life shouldn't look this way anymore. And so then in verses 18 
through 20 of 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, flee! Run from these things. Flee sexual immorality. Saying every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So as we look at this, and we're we're caught up now to where we ended last week. As we look at this, we should see that there is a clear challenge here, right? There's a clear challenge. Paul's saying, here's what you need to do. He says, flee. Flee sexual, sexual immorality. Flee sin. And as we put then the letter together, as we consider where we've been so far in six chapters, I wonder, like, what is it that you're hearing? Because we hear this message that there's sin among you, division, you're not maturing in Christ, sexual sin is ruining you, and as a believer you shouldn't be involved in it, so flee from it. And that would be a pretty good summary of much of what he's shared so far. But then I think to myself, well, what of, what of those who today don't simply read about what was going on in Corinth, but maybe find themselves going, you know, that's kind of speaking to my own life. And then what? Because here we're also hearing in this, in this letter, you're in Christ. You're different. You're washed. You're sanctified. But I wonder this morning, which one, which of those messages is loudest? in your mind and in your heart. Here's where I'm going with this. Much of experiencing the transforming work of Christ in our lives is about truly understanding His radical grace and letting it invade your life. Everything in our culture tells us that we must merit what comes our way. So to the positive, we must earn it, we must perform. You're only as good as your last performance. Those types of thoughts, right? I've got to work harder. If I want to be closer to Christ, I've got to work to get closer to Christ. If I want more of Christ, I've got to work to get more of Christ. If I want blessing from the Lord, I've got to work to earn that blessing. I've got to clean my life up, shape up, or ship out, Right? And so then what the problem becomes is that same pattern of thinking can be applied conversely. I sinned. I deserve what's coming my way. God must be mad. I mean, it says right here that do I not know that my body is the temple of the Lord and, and now I've, I've done this thing and, and how can I possibly look Him in the face again? I screwed up. Now here's this mound of sin before me and it's interrupted holiness and I've done it again. How can I possibly expect that He's going to forgive me again? Does that sound familiar to anybody? But this is not the way of Jesus. Jesus. As familiar as what I described to you just now may sound, what we must understand is that it is in no way, shape, or form what Jesus thinks. I wonder when you consider chapters like we've considered here, and, and the theme that's often woven throughout 1 Corinthians thus far, what do you think about who you are? What do you think God thinks of you to our earlier reflection? Oftentimes, in, in that, that list I read to you earlier, early on in our walk with the Lord, I've been changed into a new creation. I'm, I'm fused with Jesus. He loves me. He enjoys me. He, he's maturing me. I can trust and receive His love. But then time goes by and some of these things, they start to slow down a little bit. Challenges come in. Failures. 
and these feelings give way to, you know, I, I changed maybe in a legal sense, like his word says I'm justified, but I, I don't know, maybe not really. God is usually disappointed with me. He expects me, I think, based off of his word, to try and fix myself, to do better. I, I really can't be trusted because I know, I know my secret sin or my issues, and I certainly can't trust anyone else because it's maybe the pattern in the church too that we all just say, hey, we're okay, everybody's okay, everybody's feeling fine. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Fine. Oh, I'm great. I'm good. I'm awesome. And inside we're all going, oh, that is such a lie, but I cannot trust right now that I can tell anybody how I'm really feeling because that would be very dangerous. And we all know that, but we think we're the only ones, but not really. And then we begin to convince ourselves, man, this thing is kind of fake. But it's the right thing to do. I know it's the right thing to do because I do have the Holy Spirit in me, so I'm convicted of some of these things, but maybe if I just go on pretending, everything will be okay. But Romans 8 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. For what the law could not do, verse 3, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And why did He do that? Because He loves you. And in case you didn't know it, He sent His Son before you were even here. Before you even screwed some of those things up. He came and He died already and already said, it is finished. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Or 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ. He is an old creation never to change. No. A new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Oh, but that can't be me because I did it again. Is that what he says? I wonder, uh, Romans 8 or 2 Corinthians 5 or pick whatever life verse of yours is an encouragement to you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? What we think about ourselves, what we think about God, and what, what He thinks about us, can I tell you this morning, it matters. It matters. But so often this is skewed because we are still so prone to misunderstanding God's grace and placing emphasis on our own performance. And we hear some of the messages in 1 Corinthians as you must be mature. Look, we, we hear sometimes Paul saying, you must be maturing, you must be growing, you must flee, you must deal with this sin. And you heard me say some of these things because I'm teaching through the passage. And, you, and then maybe you leave and you go, oh gosh, i got to do better, i got to get better, i got to be better, i got to work harder. Listen to me. It is not a matter of if I want to follow and live for Christ, then I must work harder to change from who I was to who I am supposed to be. That's getting the process of sanctification all messed up. Let me say that again. If you are thinking in terms of for me to follow and live for Christ, then I must work harder to change from who I was to who I am supposed to be, then you inevitably are tired, worn out, and burdened. You're getting the process of sanctification wrong. Our human understanding so easily makes this about moral discipline and our efforts. How's your yearly Bible plan going? Who's, who's, who's struggling? We'll go that route. I'm not going to give anybody the chance to be prideful. Like, I'm nailing it. I got it. Who's like, man, I'm a little off track on my annual Bible reading plan. Notice my hand is up, okay? Hey, a few more went up when I said that. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> I'm way off track. Way off track. I felt guilty for a couple days. And then God, come on, man. He didn't really do that. That's so counterintuitive, right? That's what it felt like to me. I got you, I got you. Second Corinthians 5.17 You are a new creation. 
You said that already. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you. Are you getting that? He says, you are different now. You see, our thinking, I have to change. His thinking, you have. Do you understand that? That's very different. He says, such were some of you, but now, they write in the cure, some believe they will eventually, through sincere diligence, change into someone better. Their confidence to change centers on sanctified self-effort. Others believe the very essence of who they now are is completely changed. They are convinced of absolute fused union with the God of the universe. Their confidence then to mature is placed squarely in trust of their new identity in Jesus. It's about beginning to walk in who He has created you to be. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him, who is the head of all principality and power. Do you believe this? Here's what I think is true of many of us. We want to. We want to believe that. But our continued battle with sin patterns convince us otherwise. And shame prevents us from believing what God says is true about us. They go on to write, much of our difficulty accepting this new life has to do with the shame we carry. Shame. It whispers and hisses that no matter what you do, you will always be defined by what you did or what was done to you. It mocks you. Shame wants you desperately performing for acceptance that you don't believe you deserve. Look with me to Genesis 3 for a moment. Beginning in Genesis 3 and verse 1, we read now, The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? And so he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. We must understand that our enemy, the devil, continues to this day to prowl around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And all of his tactics are still tactics of deception. And what we see here in the original sin in the garden was a pattern of questioning God's Word, aspiring to be something that we're not, and in shame hiding from God. It is the same pattern of sin in our lives today. Do I believe God's Word? Am I seeking an identity that's not my own? And when I realize those things, 
where I tell myself the lies related to those things, I then in shame seek to hide and just keep going round and round in that same pattern. Who is God? You see, in, the, in God's law, He tells us we, we shall not make a graven image. We shall not make a God in our own image. Have you made God in your image? Such that He is angry with you for your mistake? That He sort of tolerates you because He has to? Have you created this God of shame? The authors of the cure continue, that's when we begin to form the fake God. We imagine Him staring at us with a thin smile and a measured nod. He has to love us, but He's not sure He likes us. His arms are folded. He wears an expression that says, yes, your sins are forgiven. Your ticket's punched for eternity, but don't get lazy. Your sins are forgiven, but you're still the same failure. And for the believer, you had an excuse before, but not anymore. And so we, we, we give ourselves over to this lie and, and, and the idea of grace, the idea of such amazing grace that offends our senses because we're not that way on the horizontal. We can be forgiving. We've learned to be more forgiving, but the reality is we still hold on to things. We still hold grudges. We still uh, hold on to burdens. We still let bitterness set in. And so the idea of God just overlooking these things somehow, loving us in the midst of it all, it offends our senses. Shame rushes back in. Friends, in order to experience God's grace, we must receive God's grace. We must be willing to believe we are who He says we are. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. He says, you're righteous. Do you know that you have been made righteous? If you have surrendered your life to Christ, you can receive His righteousness. Do you know that God loves and He has always loved you? Do you know that? The conference the last two days, in His Image Conference, which by the way was geared towards all of the tough issues of the day, social justice, LGBT+, issues of racism and ethnic reconciliation, I mean, all that stuff. And you know what the theme was throughout all? From people who are speaking as experts, who experienced some of these things, people just need to know that God loves them. Do you know that God loves you? He always has. And He still does. And that He has always longed to be with you Man, I don't think I have time to go through this part. We're going to go fast. Get ready? We need another history lesson. We've done this, sort of this before. Sin separated us from God in the garden, right? We know that. But even then, what did God do? He covered us. He found them naked, hiding, in shame. And their, their makeshift coverings, and He said, no. Come here. Let me clothe you. And then, yeah, he sent him out of the garden, and people go, see, God was angry. No, he said, I can't let you live forever in this. I can't let you remain here with the tree of life forever in your sin. No, I need to keep you from this, but don't worry, I've got this. And from then on, God's heart was broken because what he experienced, what God experienced in the garden, was the was walking with His creation, the chief of His creations. Do you know that God was so excited to meet with them in the cool of the day in the garden, to walk with them as He did every day, but now it was separated. And He said, what did He say in that moment? He said, I'm going to cover you and I need to put you out, but man, I'm going to miss this. And rest assured, I'm going to work to make all of this right so that I can be with you again. 
And from that point on, He continued to pursue us. And he pursued His people. And throughout history, we see how faithful He was in setting the people apart, called by His own name to be the means of His plan of salvation. And even when they were in Egypt, the cry came out and He heard their cry and He came and He delivered them and He brought them into the wilderness. He said, I just want to be with you. And then he met with Moses there and he said, I want to be with the people. And they were too afraid. And, and God says, well, I'm going to come down. And so he, had, he gives them instruction for the tabernacle so that he could be amongst his people and he could lead them and he could guide them. And that continued all the way into their time in the promised land as they built the temple. And, and here he comes in and he rushes into the temple. He just says, I want to be with you. And you know what he did so that he could be with us? He said, I'm going to send my only son, Jesus Christ, to come and die for you so that this relationship can be reconciled. And Jesus did that. He came, and as He prays in John 17, He does this, and He prays even now that, that we would be one, that we would be together. And when Jesus, when He, when he ascended into heaven, He says, I go, that I may, pre may prepare a place for you. But what does He say? Does He say He's going to leave us or forsake us? No, He says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to be with you. And do you know that in that moment in history, that was, that, up until that point, the Holy Spirit could only come upon someone. God could only be in their midst or come upon them. Never until that time could God come in. And when He sent the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came into believers and the Holy Spirit can come in because He's made you righteous. That's why. He could not go in because we had not been made righteous, but because it is finished, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, believer. And He's with you. Do you see what a distinction that is? And this is all about His pursuit of you because He loves you. And yes, now we have liberty in Him. And, and, and that's part of what was going uh, uh, awry with the church in Corinth. But Paul deals with this elsewhere with the Galatians. He says, stand fast therefore in the liberty. This is Galatians 5, verse 1, and then verses 13 and 14. Galatians 5, 1. 13 and 14. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. And so he's saying here, look, yes, I've freed you, but I've freed you no differently than my people when I took them out of Egypt. They went from slavery, not to freedom, but to covenant. And I've given you freedom so that you can walk with me and so that I can abide in you. And if you abide in me, it will be one. You'll have what you ask. And so you see, God wanted to be with us so much so that eventually right, he, he brings about His plan of salvation. And John writes in 14, in verses 17 and 23, John 14, 17 and 23, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. And Jesus answered and said, And if anyone loves Me, He will keep My word, and My Father will love Him, and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Christian, He's made His home with you. How do you see God? How do you think He sees you in all of that sin? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But here's the thing, you must believe this. If you don't, you'll continue to live in self-condemnation. To the unbeliever, you must receive Jesus and believe that He makes you a new creation. And let me say this to you clearly, whether here or watching online, watching later on, if you have yet to come to Christ because you're convinced that you are beyond His grace, you don't know how powerful His grace is. There is literally nothing, hear me again, nothing, that you have done that can keep you from coming to Him. Do you think that God is concerned or angry because you're not changing? Ask yourself this. You've got to be honest with yourself. If that's you, if you're like, yeah, you know, sometimes I do think that. I think that sometimes God is upset because I'm not changing. Because I did the same thing again and I screwed it up and I feel terrible about it, but I know I've hurt Him. 
Is that the way that you think? Or do you go, man, God, you love me. And I know I don't deserve it, but I know you love me and thank you. And do you think in terms of, no, you've already changed me. And you're lovingly forming me into the person that you've made me to be. Guys, there's a distinct difference there. Nuance, but it's distinct. Going back then to the maturing of the believer and fleeing sin. Because it's not just sexual sin, it's all sorts of sin patterns, okay? Depending on how you see God will determine this work in your life. God's grace and His love is the only thing that can overcome your sin and shame. It's the only thing. And so if you've convinced yourself, and again, whatever it is, okay? Maybe there is some sort of sexual sin, but maybe there's a, maybe there's a pattern of anger. Maybe there's a pattern of, of mistrust. Maybe there's a pattern of just uh, uh, whatever it is. You know it in your life. You know it. You know what you're continuing to go through. It's when you find yourself going, man, here we are again. The only thing that will overcome that is His grace and His love. Without receiving that, you only engage in a pattern of sin management. And you, and you know this, you're finding yourself where in periods of time, you're like, man, I'm good, we got this thing licked. All right, praise the Lord. But then here it comes again. And so you keep the same cycle going, the same pattern, but here's the thing. How do you think that God goes about demonstrating much of His grace and His love? Because that's a question for us too. Like, what is that? Sometimes it seems so sort of ambiguous and, and vague, right? Like, I know His Word communicates it to me, and I feel it sometimes, but how else might God demonstrate His grace and His love towards you? Galatians 6, 1-2, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. He uses us. He uses us. He uses His church. Us together being willing to say, hey look, such were some of you. We were all in that boat, but now we're different. And so like it or not, here we are. <laughs> this big mess together. And sometimes we upset each other. Sometimes we have hurt each other. But we say, man, we're the body of Christ. What God has joined together, let no man separate. And so then not only do we need to trust who He says He is and what He says about us, but we need to trust His body. And part of how we do that then is in our shame, it convinces us to hide, to pretend. And so we need to bring those things into the light. That's how we break the pattern. We trust who he says he is, who he says we are, and we go, okay, I can make this now known. I can bring this thing out as scary as it is, as it is and trust people with it. And that's the process of confession. That's living in the light. My identity in Christ allows me to see through the truth without having to hide in fear that failure will define me or confirm that I'm not enough. We're going to move through communion a little bit quicker. Friends, we're called to take sin seriously. We're called to mature in Christ, but I wonder when you hear those things, do you feel, listen, do you feel like you need to gird yourself up and get after it? Or do you think, Jesus, you said it was finished. You've changed me. You've made me new. And so I'm just going to give this to you. This thing in my life, Lord, I'm going to surrender it to you. I'm going to let you do it. It's kind of like Romans 12, 1 and 2, isn't it? It's surrender to Him and to what He has done and who He has made you that produces maturity, that conquers sin. Yes, we obey, sure, but we do so knowing that, Lord, who You want me to be is who You've made me to be.
Do you get that? I'm going to ask you here, and thanks for being patient with me today. I asked you at the beginning. If you would bow your heads. Go with me. We don't do this very often. Please just bow your heads. Close your eyes. I want to ask you to think about what is the sin pattern in your life that you're stuck in because shame has convinced you that you can't trust His grace. It's something that you know you need to make known to someone in order to just bring it into the light and to trust Him and to be able to have victory. Well, Lord, You know. You know our hearts. And Lord, You know the details of each individual thing there. And the struggle. And so, Lord, here in this moment, we're just saying to You, we know, Lord, we... we we recognize it. And we want to trust You and we want to trust Your grace. And Lord, we're asking for Your help that the strength of the Spirit, Lord, would give us the confidence to begin to respond differently to these things. To now, as You've taken the first step, and, and this is indeed just the first step, but You've been willing to just put Your hand up and to say, yeah, I, that's me. Well, then now be accountable to that and, and be willing to just follow that through and to say, Lord, I'm going to trust you with it. Not only am I confessing it to you, maybe you've not done that before, maybe you've not actually verbalized it to the Lord. He knows your heart, but you just need to, you just need to say it to Him, be honest with Him. But then to find a brother or sister to pray, say, Lord, show me, give me somebody I can go to to just say, hey, I want to just share this is what's going on in my life and trust that His body can be used as a means of His grace and His mercy to bring about reconciliation, restoration, to help to move you beyond this place that you've been stuck in. And for you here now, before as we come and we take communion, we know that we desire to take communion with right hearts, hearts that have been searched by the Lord. And so we avail ourselves to you, Lord, and say, God, whatever is in us, Lord, that's not of you, continue to reveal it because as Lord, as we partake of these elements in remembrance of you, Lord, we want to have right hearts before you. We want to, to know that, Lord, we're saying, yes, we trust you and we trust your grace. We trust who you are and who you say we are. And so, Lord, do that work in our hearts here now. As we partake in communion, may we do so, Lord, in right standing before you, fully aware, Lord, of what it is you've done for us and how much you love us. And may we do it with hearts ready to receive that, Lord. We love you and praise you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week. So make sure that you are subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.